Because if there's one thing people want to hear, it's us talking about our fantasy teams. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world beat the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 10th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? Yeah, just trying to bring the energy. Exuberant. Yeah, yes. that's great. Well, uh, football is finally here, well, so we have to feel excited. Yeah, it does bring new joy into our lives, for sure. Uh, on the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Jeff, you got the, you bringing that joy this morning? That football feeling? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm loving it. I forgot how much I love football. Really? No, I didn't. No, that's the only thing you love is football. (laughs) Oh, we need we do need to talk about Michigan's. uh... If Michigan had lost to Army, which I didn't even watch. Sure. Because you you literally always when you have two kids, you can't watch every Michigan game. But if they would have lost to Army. You know, I don't have any kids and I don't watch any Michigan games. So I might have been done for a while. (laughs) And, and by while, I mean a week. Right. <laughs> Always coming back for more. It was a huge sports weekend, including the kickoff of the NFL season, big showdowns between ranked teams in college football, and the end of the WNBA's regular season. But the matchups I was most glued to this weekend were at the U.S. Open. Rafael Nadal beat Daniel Medvedev in five sets to win his fourth U.S. Open, while Canadian Bianca Andreescu defeated Serena Williams in straight sets to win her first major title. Serena has now lost four major finals in a row, and all of those losses were in straight sets. She needs one more single title still to tie the record set by Margaret Court at 24. Serena herself has downplayed her desire to beat that record, but it does seem like she might be feeling that pressure in these finals. She'd been looking so good up to that point, and then and then in the final, just sort of got overpowered. I don't know. Is she? Is she? Do you think she is? Feeling that pressure? I don't know. I mean, this is somebody that was totally unbeatable in major finals for a long time. I think at one point she had won 13 out of 14 uh, finals in Grand Slams that she appeared in. So you would think that having done that, pressure wouldn't be an issue. And I'm wondering whether it's more just like now she is at an age. uh, She's 38, right? 37. Uh, Or 37. Going to turn 38. um, That... We've never seen someone on either the men's or women's side win a Grand Slam at this age. And she doesn't see it, you know, she is able to make it through the, the competition to get to these finals. So that's an indication that maybe she hasn't lost a step. Um, but I do think that this next generation, we talked before about how the fact that they can't seem to string together, uh, wins of their own or really dominant stretches of their own, but like the peak level of, you know, Naomi Osaka, or in this case, Andriscu, uh, seems to always just be like a little bit more than Serena herself is mm-hmm. able to kind of offer once they get to that final stage. And I don't know if that's because of age, uh, or not, but it is worth saying that, you know, similar, we always bring up Tom Brady in these situations too, like these quarterbacks that are super old and we just keep waiting for them to kind of fall off. We've seen Serena Williams be so good for so long that it seems inconceivable that she would ever lose anything off of her game. So uh, I think we have a bias toward just assuming that the status quo is the status quo and she's kind of always going to be great. And we know deep down, I think, in our heart of hearts that that's <laughs> not true. And so I don't know if we're seeing what that, you know, the first signs of what that looks like now. I also sort of wonder if it's just, the idea at her age of playing, having to win seven matches in two weeks, like maybe just seven is just one too many. And if the tournament was slightly smaller, she would be, you know, a 64 team tournament, then she'd be better. But then the other thing is like something that this is not to take anything away from Serena, but she has had pretty good luck. If you look at the four she's lost in a row. So the last two Wimbledons and two U.S. Opens. She's kind of dodged a lot of tough opponents in the in the middle part of the tournament, and obviously the four women she lost to in the finals are all really good. Um, so I mean, like 2008 Wimbledon, she she didn't play anyone seated until the semifinals. She's only played before the finals 
two single digit seeds, including the semifinals, uh, this year. So she's had some, and, and that's also her, you know, generally, I mean, I think this year she was a higher seed, but in, in the other three, she was herself lined up to play a high seed and, and, you know, there were upsets because the, the women's side has been rife with upsets lately, except for her. Um, but I, that being said, I wonder if just the exhaustion of just the full, huge tournament is getting to her and we're seeing it uh, materialize in the final. Yeah, I feel like this tournament was the first tournament since she's been back that I thought, oh, she is in shape. She's in really good shape right now. She was running so well. She was moving really well. She seems like she's like fully back now from her maternity leave. And, and I think she just ran into someone who could play with the same kind of power that she could in that final. I, I feel like the previous three finals were more a case of that where it looked like she was really just getting lucky. She was so dominant this tournament. I mean, against all of the competition, she just looked so strong. She was beating the lesser names by, you know, you know, six one, six love. Um, so I, I feel like now she's, it seems like she's back now. And, and maybe we should just consider that Bianca Andreescu is really, really good. Right now yeah. she ranks number one in the world in Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings. And she actually had a higher ELO rating. We had commented, I, I sent Sarah Slack about this, um, when I had the sneaking suspicion that Serena would, would <laughs> maybe lose or struggle in this final, that um, Andreescu, I, I think people didn't give her enough credit for being as good as she was because she's super young uh, and, and she's was a, facing Serena Williams. And in she's a had a meteoric rise. I mean, she was she was ranked in the, you know, late 100s at the beginning of the season. Like she has come out of nowhere. So it's not super surprising that people didn't take her really seriously. People meaning us, not people meaning I think Serena knew <laughs> what she was going to get into. Um, she even said that during the tournament that she didn't really want to face injury school, which I kind of love. So yeah, I think, you know, tennis is, there's a lot of parody in women's tennis. It's, you know, the opposite of the men's game. Um, but I still think Serena's going to break that. She's going to tie that record. I think, what do you guys, what do you think? Do you think it'll tie it? I know Jeff, you don't think much of that record. Yeah, I don't think much of that record. That's not even a real record. But I think it's actually more important for her to win a slam post-maternity leave. And I think that's also in play here. And all these final losses have come, obviously, since she came back. So, I mean, there's there's a couple added pressures going on. Definitely. What do you think, Neil? Do you think she'll get another one? Uh, I've, I've learned that, uh, it's not smart to bet against Serena Williams. So, uh, <laughs> at, at a first guess, I would say, yes, she probably will. But then, like I said earlier, I mean, we're seeing even like Federer, who's roughly the same age, sort of, you know, struggle, uh, in recent, um, Grand Slams also, uh, when he seemed like he was positioned well. So I don't know what about it. Is it, is it mobility? Is it power? Is it, you know, wh- where does the aging sort of hit you first as a, as a tennis player? But we are, even for this amazing generation, we're seeing them kind of get older and older and older than we've ever seen people be competitive at tennis. Yeah. Well, we have four months until the Australian Open, so I guess we'll find out that. Four more months of aging. <laughs> four more months of, of all of us getting slightly older. Hooray. On today's show, we'll discuss our impressions of week one of the 2019 NFL season. Before taking a deeper look at the Antonio Brown saga and what it means for the Patriots and the league in general. And as always, we'll end with a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Before we move on, though, I wanted to ask you guys, are either of you at all concerned about balding? Random question for our podcast. I mean, that's that's kind of a big question. (laughs) It's a big Um, question. Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm like mildly concerned. You guys both have a lot of hair. I yeah, but you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's thinning. It, you know, it, it, it's definitely a concern. Well, here's a word from one of our sponsors this week, keeps.com. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The good news is that with today's advancements in science, keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for a prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get medication delivered to your home. No more waiting rooms and no more pharmacy checkout lines. Get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors 
and why nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash takedown to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash takedown. Before we get into what actually happened in the NFL this weekend, I have to ask, how did you two do in the 538 Fantasy Football League? I won. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, it was ugly. Also. I, you Good know, for both it was of you. A, it was a gutty victory, but I did it. Oh, I really? I don't know who I played. <laughs> you have that little regard. <laughs> Sarah, you uh, you only lost because you went up against a historic powerhouse. Is that right? Let me tell you what happened to me this weekend, Neil. Let me tell you about my fantasy football team. Words everyone wants to hear. Yes. No. <laughs> please go on. <laughs> I had a perfectly mediocre week. It was fine. Would have. It was. I had the tenth most points in the league. By the way, a sixteen-team league like we have is out of control. Ludicrous. This is. There's so many teams and so few decent players on the waiver wire. It's really a bummer. I'm sorry. What's your team's name? What's your team name? I'm trying to look it up here. I am Goff and Running. Do you usually do puns off of player names? I do. Yeah. I feel like that, you know, it helps it helps bond me with my players. You have That's to. important. But is Goff on your team? Yeah, that would be dumb if he weren't. Well, no, I've, I've encountered <laughs> cases, though, where people, like, name the team before the draft, and right. they don't get that player, and they just stick with the name, and it doesn't make any sense. Right, and, like, I, so I, I didn't. I didn't name my team until after we had drafted, so it would have been extra weird if I had waited to see who I got and then been like, you know what? I really like that Jared Goff. Yeah, right. I'm going to name after him. <laughs> that would have been that would have been a little. And weird. if you name and if you name it after a player beforehand, do you reach for that player? Uh, see, that's why I never name yeah. a player before name my team beforehand. Sarah, you have great name potential here. I mean, you got Nick Chubb. There's a lot you could do with that. You've got Jared <laughs> Cook. Yeah, there's stuff you could do there. I'm impressed. Yeah. I had a lot of lot of puns at my disposal, which is great. So my team was fine. It did fine. It was whatever. Would have liked a little more production, but it was okay. I went up against a team with historic <laughs> numbers. I have never seen a team score this many points. I've been playing fantasy football since 2002, maybe, something like that. And I've never seen a team score in a pretty standard format. Now, we do use PPR, but it's other than that, nothing weird. This team scored 216 points against me. Oh, my God. (sighs) Which I just... So, the only two players on her team had fewer than 20. The kicker and, hilariously, Cam Newton, (laughs) 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 who had just five points. Everyone else went off. Christian McCaffrey had 43. Uh, Sammy Watkins had 47. Two players with 40 plus points. Yeah, that's just such nonsense. She got 22 points from her defense. Like, yeah, I mean, what are you supposed to do with this? There's just nothing. There's nothing you can do. You ran up against a buzzsaw. I did. It was the cooler. (laughs) In terms of the results that actually matter, our 538 predictions whiffed hardest on the first game of the season. Last Thursday's uh, instant classic. (laughs) or whatever the opposite of that is, between the Bears and the Packers. We gave Chicago a 64% chance to win. It did not. Jeff, which of the Sunday games do you think our predictions got the most wrong? I think our predictions generally did pretty well. I mean, I, you know, our predictions will will generally favor the, the favorite or the, the, the Vegas favorite, and there weren't a ton of upsets. They got the Browns wrong, but I think most people got that wrong. Um. I, I don't think they – a lot of people thought they were going to give up 40-plus points to the Titans at home after all that hype. Um, the other two it got wrong were kind of coin flip games, the Jets losing, blowing that lead because they don't have a kicker. Because the Jets obviously um, didn't get the memo that you need a kicker to play in the NFL. They just kind of ignored that. Yeah, I thought we don't we don't like kickers. We don't think they're important. I thought the official 538 stance was that kickers – are, are just replaceable. No, that oh. that kickers are getting better and better all the time. Oh, is that our stance? Yeah. Okay. Although I guess they're all getting better and better relative to each other. Mm, I will say that um, in our fantasy league, I'm going to stream kickers every <laughs> <Nice>. week. <laughs> I, I will say that um, there were a couple a couple games at 5:30. We obviously had big um, 
heavy favorites that were close. You know, Seattle, we had at 75%. They won by a point. The Chargers were 72%. They won in overtime. Philly was 77%. They were down 17 nothing to Washington. So, um, you know, the end results worked out, but there were certainly some scares there for, for a lot of the heavy favorites and people in survivor leagues. <laughs> So the Browns were one of the most talked about teams coming into the season, and they were among the most bet on teams to win the Super Bowl. Neil, you've written about the ups and downs of the Browns. Should Cleveland fans be panicking? I don't know. I mean, you know, can you panic if you really have never been good and all of a sudden you were expected to be good, but you haven't hadn't actually proven that you could be good yet? Is that cause to panic when it seems like you might not be as good as you thought? Like panic seems to set in if you're sort of expecting to be good because you have been good and I don't know. So is it just despair if you thought you'd be good and you're not? Or maybe just like a, oh, here we go again. Oh, it's going to be this again. All right. I'm used to this. Sort of like a return to expectation almost. <laughs> right. The sooner they can get back to that place where like you're playing with house money when you actually string together some wins, that will be sort of the good place for them, I feel like. And maybe that's starting soon. I don't think they're as bad as they looked against Tennessee, um, even if some of the Super Bowl hype going into the season was a little bit much. They also had 18 penalties for 182 yards, which is staggering. I mean, that's that's nearly yeah. half the total yards they had. Um, they also turned the ball over three times. I, I think a lot of people kind of underestimating i saw some you know analysts saying this that if you bring a bunch of guys in you know which they did a lot of new names on both sides of the ball it's not going to like work immediately and and obviously this team with the penalties alone just wasn't quite prepared for this game maybe it's the you know maybe this is the lack of playing in preseason manifesting that you see a lot of sloppy games and i think we saw that up and down the league so uh, it's you don't want to overreact to week one it's too early to like count them out. I think they still have so much talent. Beck, Mayfield and Beckham were, you know, connecting. They, I think he had seven receptions. So, I mean, that, that could be very promising. And, you know, it's, it's way too early. It's one game. Unless you're the Dolphins. <laughs> True. Well, overreacting is sort of the thing that we do, fans, the media, maybe even our own model. No, our model Our model react. would never, never overreact. Never. It might underreact. Yeah. I right. mean, you've argued that in our baseball version, underreacted to the Twins it all It continues to. I'm still mad about it and will continue to be mad about it. Here's Micah Roberts on CBS Sports talking about the first game of the season in the NFL. This is the problem with week one. Fans have been waiting so long for football that everything that they see, they take to be gospel. And so there's a huge overreaction, probably more than any time in the year from week one to week two. So, Jeff, you're saying that the Browns fans should not panic just yet. No, I think they're going to be. I think Mayfield, he played great for three quarters. Obviously, you know, the image of him distraught on the on the sidelines was, you know, the the sort of image everyone was clinging to, but I think he will be okay. I think he'll be fine. I think they have the Jets this week, which is a good thing for them. It's a tough division, though. I mean, Baltimore looked great. I mean, Pittsburgh obviously did not, but they were playing the Patriots. So it's not going to be easy. It never is. And honestly, in the AFC, the way New England looked, it pretty much feels hopeless for all other teams in the AFC. <laughs> So they should panic about that. They should panic about <laughs> should who all else panic is out there. That, yeah. yeah, no, I I definitely think everyone should be panicked. 31 <laughs> other teams should be panicking about the Patriots right now. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any other teams that we should that we think might be overreacting that shouldn't after the first week? Well, if you're thinking about overreaction in sort of like a positive way, maybe Baltimore is a candidate. Uh Lamar Jackson after last year in which he was one of the worst passers in the league and in a playoff game, I think he went like on the wall clock, like two hours of time between completions at one point in that playoff game against the Chargers, uh, <laughs> including like halftime and, and so on and so forth. But my point is, is that people were expecting his passing to be a liability and that they would have to retool their offense around his running and, and hope that that kind of carried them. 
back to the playoffs. Instead, he comes out and is ridiculous. He he completed, uh, I think he had a 100 completion percent, 100% completion percentage uh, for like his first 15 or 16 <laughs> passes or something like that. Uh, he went 17 for 20, 324 yards, five touchdowns, no picks, perfect 158.3 passer rating. Um, and I said this in our, in our Slack chat yesterday, uh, you could have told me, Okay, a quarterback's going to do this week one. Guess which one it'll be. I would have gone down 25, 30 <laughs> names on the list before I got to Lamar Jackson. It just came out of nowhere. It's, it has to be the most unpredicted, perfect passer rating game in history. And, and so, you know, maybe the temptation now is to be like, Baltimore is going to be scary if if Lamar Jackson has kind of figured it out. But... These were the Dolphins, and so I I don't really know. I mean, I think the potential there might be to overreact um, and and kind of put them in a new tier other than, you know, we had them as a team that was, you know, looked like uh, a co-favorite in that division uh, at least um, next to Pittsburgh, and now Pittsburgh looks bad. It's not an overreaction to call them the favorites Mm -hmm. in their division, but maybe not, you know, on the same tier as Kansas City or New England or something like that, which the temptation is after a game like Lamar Jackson had. I think the flip side of that, Neil, is that they put up that huge number and he only ran three carries for six yards. So they didn't even use one of their primary weapons. If he's one of, I mean, he might be the best running quarterback since Vic and he didn't even need to run at all and he could do all that with his arm. Granted. We're going to keep the same caveat going against the Dolphins. We need, like, dolphin-adjusted <laughs> numbers. <Very nice. laughs> if he has legitimately improved his passing ability, I mean, this guy did win the Heisman. Then, I mean, I think he's headed towards a great season and stardom. And I think Baltimore would be good. I always thought Baltimore would be good this year. On the same line of quarterbacks not doing what they're known for, Kirk Cousins doesn't throw the ball anymore, guys. He just hands it off. How nice. I mean, you're probably happy about that. <laughs> I was fine with it. Noted cousin. I enjoyed the hater. win. <laughs> I just love that the Vikings are like, oh, everyone's passing now. Yeah, no, we don't want to. It's an interesting strategy. <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. Wasn't it partially like game flow? I mean, they were winning the entire time. They Atlanta turned the ball over a bunch. They were holding on to a lead. Dalvin Cook was playing great. He didn't need to pass. I mean, he will pass, obviously, when Minnesota gives up some points or is losing, which didn't really happen in that game. Yeah, and there there is definitely a lot to that. The defense looked great and had a bunch of takeaways. But we have a story coming out on the 538 website later today about the Vikings their offensive strategy has switched since they fired their old coordinator in December and the interim then became this year's offensive coordinator. They, um, yeah, they don't really pass anymore. They pass like 37% of the time. Uh, and they, that was complete reversal from what was going on last season. And that's in four games since four games since the new coordinator. Yeah. And here's a great stat from, uh, our friend Chase Stewart of footballperspective.com. So in this one game, the Vikings passed on only 22% of their offensive plays. So that was the lowest pass ratio by any team in a game since Tim Tebow, uh, and the Broncos, uh, played the Chiefs in 2011. So just to kind of give you perspective, even, I mean, there have been other games where a team got out to a really quick, you know, double digit, multi-touchdown, whatever lead. And none of those games ended up with a team, um, passing the ball only 22% of the time. So I think you're, uh, you have a good point, Sarah, about the, you know, the philosophy of this team. Uh, last year, that Mike Zimmer was sort of chomping the bit to to run the ball more. You know, he's one of these old school, uh, hard nosed coaches that really wants to establish the run, and now he's getting his wish. Now, a lot of like smart analysts and you know stat head types would say that's not the most efficient way to run an offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the more teams run the ball, the more they put themselves in disadvantageous uh, down and distance situations and, and reduce their expected points. But, you know, good luck to the Vikings with, with that uh, unconventional game plan. But it's also effective. I mean, what they're looking at, you know, a lot of the analysts look at you want to run in passing scenarios and pass in running scenarios and, and, and keep – 
the defense, the opposing defense off balance. And because they have Thielen and Diggs and Cousins to a certain extent, they have a legitimately real passing attack that the other the other side has to respect, and that helps the running game. If you're completely one-dimensional and you have a lousy quarterback and you're barely even trying to pass, that's not going to work. But Minnesota has a balance, even if they're not using that balance. Yeah. Although I will say, here are some plays where they ran the ball. They ran the ball on a third and 26. Uh, they, <laughs> oh, my favorite play. They ran the ball on third and 10. They ran the ball on third and eight, and they also ran the ball on third and ten. Again, granted, this was in the final minutes of the game. They were trying to chew up the clock. Uh, but there's, like, running when when you should pass and keeping the defense off balance, and then there's, like, just making up your mind to run no matter what. Yeah, I also I worry about um, Thielen and Diggs, and they got six combined targets in Sunday's game. That it doesn't seem like a great recipe to keep your – star wide receivers super happy no so that's a little and there's been discord in the uh clubhouse before so we want to stay away from that well on the sidelines anyway for all to see on national television that's where you should have your discord no yeah that's where i always have my discord um we have to talk about the tie that happened this weekend in football i love ties so much and we got one in the first week amazing kyler murray and the cardinals came back to tie the lions which, uh, what a, what a day. The weeks, the ties are really just do seem to be a thing now, and I love it. I have to assume that it's because of the rule change that, you know, shortened overtime on top of some of the other things that they've kind of tweaked with overtime. Yeah, the first team to get a field goal doesn't just win like it used to be. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that does, yeah. And that would have actually, you know, the, the Lions Cardinals game would have ended before the end of, overtime ended the game in a tie if it had just been sudden death like in the past uh so you know i don't know they they have certainly legislated in more ties but i don't think that that was what they were going for but doesn't necessarily it, doesn't it feel a little more fair now that a field goal doesn't just win it all, all of a sudden so it's not just like whoever won the coin flip is probably going to win I, I it think feels that's fair. more fair to me i think that's fair and then if you don't if you can't score a touchdown or you know a second field goal in that entire overtime period probably all you should get is a half win right that's probably all you deserve I, I do think it's a better measure of these teams did the lions deserve a win in that game definitely, definitely not. not did the cardinals <laughs> maybe i mean they fought back sure. in the game <laughs> but they were pretty bad early so i don't know i think the tie was the correct outcome for yeah. that, for both sides of that game i just i mean kyler murray though would be more electrifying in a college overtime style um setup that's all i'm saying i i hope he's gonna be more like the fourth quarter in overtime kyler murray and not like the first three quarters kyler murray that we saw on sunday you know get the rust out it's the first game everybody's just figuring yeah, it out early yeah. jitters give me a tie i love it Of course, the other big NFL news out of the weekend was the amazing saga of Antonio Brown. Brown reportedly had gotten into a heated exchange with Oakland's general manager. And after the Raiders threatened to suspend the wide receiver, he apologized to his teammates. The team reversed the suspension. And Brown posted a YouTube video that included Gruden telling him to just play football. Then on Saturday, after Brown posted a message on Instagram that included a request to be released, the Raiders first find him and voided his guaranteed money then they outright released him that all happened on saturday <laughs> just after 5 p.m brown tweeted that he had signed with the patriots all of this followed a bizarre summer filled with helmet gripes and frozen feet here is mike greenberg on espn's get up monday morning on the whole situation but listening to Chris Mortensen and others yesterday and out here this morning, when it seems this was all an orchestrated attempt to get himself out of a situation, what we have just witnessed is the most unprofessional act that I can ever remember seeing in professional sports, and I've been covering this stuff for 30 years. Let's unpack that a little bit. Was this really an orchestrated attempt by Brown, Jeff? Or does that even matter? Well, A, I don't think it matters. B, if it was, it's probably the most outrageous thing in the history of sports he certainly was behaving like a guy who is trying to get kicked off his team to join the patriots so i understand why these theories are coming he was all it sort of reminds me of in in office space when the guy 
basically uh peter or whatever is basically gives up and he's like trying to get fired and he ends up getting promoted <laughs> it was basically kind of like that and he he was misbehaving to a degree that um but he's also just a legitimately strange dude um and these kind of things happen but he clearly wasn't happy there um you know, wasn't getting along with coach to GM and now look where he is. And, and frankly, you know, Pittsburgh was never going to trade him to New England. So he, he did kind of launder the Raiders to, to get this great situation, which is the ideal situation for him in his career. Yeah. It's interesting that the Raiders too, basically they, they were, now I don't know how much of this was just a face saving thing, but they were saying yesterday before their game that they had basically never thought that Brown was going to be on their team. They hadn't practiced with him ever. They hadn't game planned for him. They were basically assuming, you know, since the beginning of all this, that they they weren't going to have him on the team. So then if he had decided on Friday, no, I'm apologizing to my teammates. I really want to play here. It still wasn't going to be a good situation to join a team that was in no way set up for you to play with them, to excel with them or succeed with them. I mean, they probably would have accepted him, you know? Maybe. Because he is so good. And that's the reason anyone is accepting any of this, right? Uh, Like, he is good enough to justify the risk uh, despite all these distractions. And it is a testament to how good he is as much as anything that, like you said, Jeff, we've never seen anything quite like this in football history or maybe any sport uh, where someone sort of you know, acts progressively crazier and crazier and, and more um, just inappropriate to try to openly get off of a team. And people are lining up. I mean, Drew Rosenhaus, who maybe, you know, we don't know how reliable of a source he is, given the fact that he was like, oh, you know, I'm just sorry that this didn't work out. It just didn't work out. How many times can one person say it didn't work out in one <laughs> interview and not answer any questions? Many, uh, it but, turns out. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, he said that there were like a bunch of teams that were exploring the possibility of trading for him earlier uh, when when the whole Raiders thing had not yet happened and then also of signing him in the event of a release. And I don't doubt that necessarily because his talent – you know, is enough of a temptation that you think you can be the one to kind of fix him. So the reaction from the league seems to be this like, or people around the league seems to be this like tut-tutting about how unprofessional this was. I don't, I guess, I feel like there's, it didn't bother me that much. It didn't bother me as much as it seemed to bother Mike Greenberg and everyone else. I don't, did you guys feel like it was just beyond the pale for all of this to happen? It's sort of I found it kind of funny, right? I found it like on the level of like NBA drama and it didn't it didn't make me angry. It it didn't make me angry. I think part of this is just the culture. I mean, social media and everything. We just know everything that's like going on in these guys' minds where it used to be a little bit of a mystery and now we're just seeing that here's a receiver who's a diva and that's nothing new. I mean, there's a long line of receivers who are like that. In fact, most great receivers are like that. It sort of comes with the territory. Um, in some cases, it's it's even encouraged. Um, it's like necessary for that job. And we're just seeing it unfold in real time and we're getting every little development and, you know, we're seeing what he's thinking. We're seeing how he reacts when he gets caught, which was ridiculous. He's got a nice house, by the way. Um and that's all it is. It's just it's just more exposure to the inner workings of the brains of these athletes. But honestly, I think he's pretty funny. I kind of like him. I, I would be very happy if he was on the Jets. We could use him. <laughs> that's the real. Let's focus on the, the important thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think the NFL itself also is one of the reasons why there was such a reaction as it was compared with a league like the NBA because the NFL has so much of this – you know, team first, you know, you have this duty to uh, your teammates and there's, you know, 53 other, you know, guys that are uh, counting on you. And the one-sided way in which NFL contracts are kind of set up where the team has an enormous amount of power over 
the average player. So I think it was more jarring to see an individual NFL player be able to kind of bend a whole franchise or multiple teams to his will, whatever his will was. I don't know uh, whether he... You know, people were kind of saying, like, should we check in on Antonio Brown? Like, is he doing okay? Like, uh, how, how's his, his mental health through all of this? Um, so, uh, but, you know, whatever his mindset was, he was able to make multiple teams, the Steelers, the Raiders, and kind of the Patriots, maybe, uh, you know, the Patriots are the ones that are sort of least being, uh, played by him in this situation we think right now. Um, but he was able to kind of get what he wanted out of all of these teams in a way that I'm not sure we'd ever seen an NFL player, especially not a quarterback do in the, in, in the league's history. So in some ways, like, is this a banner moment for player empowerment with a phrase that we kind of talk about all the time in the NBA? Maybe not because of the way that he did it. And, and it was kind of embarrassing and, and, a real clown show for everyone involved. Uh, but at the same time, maybe this is as an NFL player, like you have to be at Brown's level and you have to act this ridiculous to have any kind of power over an agency over where you go and, and who you play for. Well, so there's another player empowerment situation or, you know, maybe more accurately a mutiny situation possibly developing in Miami where some members of the very, very bad Dolphins team have reportedly asked for trades. The Dolphins say those reports aren't true, but at least there there are at least a couple of reports of, of players contacting their agents and trying to get out of a bad Miami situation. This That team is definitely tanking. We usually think of tanking in terms of what it means for fans. But, Jeff, what does it mean from a player's perspective to be on a tanking team? Well, it's, it's certainly different in the NFL. I mean, if you look at... The NBA say when you have a tanking team, you have, you know, five guys in there who are starting and getting a lot of playing time that they're not normally going to get elsewhere. And it's a chance to showcase their talents and get another job. And likewise, in MLB, you're going to get guys, you know, in the rotation or guys, you know, in the everyday lineup who, who probably are bench players or minor leaguers. In the NFL, a lot of, most of these guys on the Dolphins will immediately get another job and they do not have very long careers in this very tough sport. So you're never going to get a team in this sport to be on board with tanking. You can construct a team, you know, major league style that you think is going to lose. Um, usually that starts with the quarterback, but you're never going to get this sort of the guys in the trenches to be like, oh, yeah, we're okay with losing. We've got a four-year plan. I mean, it's just not going to happen just because these guys are are looking out for their own careers. And by being on these terrible teams, you're not doing them any favors, and they only have so many years in this league. So I'm not I'm not that surprised by that. I, I, I just think it's the model's different in in this sport than it is in the other two. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean I just feel like there are real dangers there in the NFL that don't exist in the other sports. Right, yeah, and that's why I think it's especially like ethically uh wrong to tank in football compared with something like basketball because you can assemble a bad basketball team on purpose and put them out there and Nobody is, yeah, they're risking, you know, some level of injury just by playing and, and kind of going through the physical activity, but it's not predictable. It's not, you don't know that you're going to be, um, running into guys and kind of initiating and causing contact. Um, so I think in some ways playing for a tanking team in basketball, could kind of be a positive for your career if you're a certain type of player because you know you're going to get shots and minutes and score uh, a good number of points if you're in the starting lineup, and then you can kind of maybe parlay that into a contract somewhere else. Whereas in the NFL, you are knowingly putting players at risk every time you go out on the field, and there's this sense that, well, you know, you're battling, but it's it's either worth it uh, to yourself, uh, or, or just, you know, out of pride for your, uh, you know, your performance that you're kind of contributing toward trying to win and playing as hard as you can. And we've seen what happens in football when 
when it's tried to be played at something other than a hundred percent, and it's called the Pro Bowl, and it's <laughs> and and it's kind of a laughing stock. So I don't think it's as possible to play football at something less than full effort and full speed. Um, and so I think it's really unfair to kind of ask these guys to go out there and risk themselves and knowingly do that when you've kind of built a team that has no chance and was never designed to have a chance. And there's been a lot of bad teams over the years, teams that had, you know, not much of a probability of, of making the playoffs or whatever. But there's something especially repugnant, I think, about you know, the way that the Dolphins are going about it, they're just clearing house. And the Browns did this similar um, thing a few years ago. Maybe it's kind of worked out for them, although at the top of the show we talked about how um, they're sort of running into uh, problems to start the year. But this is similar to that, where anybody that had any kind of experience or was making any kind of salary, uh, they, they seem to kind of get rid of in the lead up to the season uh, and and now you have whoever's left trying to actively get off the team. I just, yeah, there's something being a football fan in 2019 is already sort of something that makes you think about, you know, ethically, is this okay? You know, the, the pros and cons do it. How much do I love this sport relative to what I know it's doing to the players that are playing it? It's sort of next level when you start thinking about players who are forced to, to kind of be on a team that is knowingly not having a chance to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, the situation is obviously different between Miami and Antonio Brown, but there are those themes of, I need to look out for myself. I need to protect myself both, you know, physically or financially. And I think the NFL hasn't grappled with that as much as like the NBA has. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that affects the league going forward if they're if more and more players are like no no i need to i need to protect myself all they need to do is freeze their feet complain about their helmet uh swear at the general manager <laughs> post uh videos on youtube without the permission of the coach to be recorded you know all those things i mean it's a blueprint yes <laughs> if you can follow that exactly you know where it'll take you <laughs> Well, I guess the Oakland Raiders are in need of a new wide receiver. Do you know who might be able to help with that? Maybe LinkedIn? Do you think they have wide receiver job posts? I don't know. I, they, Maybe. they might. They should. Wow. Well, Look at that, that transition. <laughs> Thanks. Some of my best work. Here's Neil with a word from this week's other sponsor, LinkedIn. Building a winning team or even just a complete team or a team that's better than the Miami Dolphins is all about finding the right people for the job. And that's why teams all over the world spend so much time recruiting athletes that they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. More than 600 million members visit LinkedIn to connect, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of the people you want to hire, people with the right hard and soft skills that you're looking for. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will have a big impact on your business. And a hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. That's why companies who use LinkedIn to hire rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. With LinkedIn jobs, you can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit LinkedIn.com slash Payne. That's my last name, P-A-I-N-E. That's LinkedIn.com slash P-A-I-N-E to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I'm very pleased to introduce first-time hot takedown guest and 538 sports intern, Ari Levin. Hi, Ari. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Well, take it away. Tell us about your rabbit hole. So when you're watching a baseball game and it's the ninth inning, there's a team trying to rally and the game ends with a strikeout. Do you think that's a fun ending or is it kind of anticlimactic? Very disappointing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree. I've heard both sides. But I think as a Marlins fan growing up, the Marlins were usually the team striking out ending the game, which is why I see it as anticlimactic. Um, so I did some digging, and this says, as you probably expect, it's increasing in terms of how often you see this. In 2019, about 36% of MLB games have ended with a strikeout, and the rates actually increased a bit faster than the overall strikeout rate, 
My guess is that has to do with there being more relievers, but I didn't look too closely at that because that's not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> I want to talk about 2000's journeyman third baseman Wes Helms. Sure. Everyone's <laughs> favorite topic of conversation. <laughs> so I had a theory watching Marlins games growing up that every single Marlins game ends with Wes Helms striking out as the Marlins are trying to maybe rally in the ninth inning. And so a little while ago, I went back to actually look at this, and it turns out I was right. (laughs) During the four years Wes Helms was on his second stint with the Marlins, 2008 to 2011, he struck out to end a game 18 times. And it turns out that's the second most of any four-year stretch in MLB history, or at least going back to 1925. This is according to the Baseball Reference Event Finder trailing only Wes Helms' four-year stretch from 2007 to 2010. Oh, my God. Amazing. He also had minus 2.6 war during those five years and was below replacement every year. Over his career, Wes Helms ended 36 games with a strikeout. That's 17th most in MLB history. Number one is Sammy Sosa with 49. But what sets him apart is he only had just over 3,000 career plate appearances. Everyone above him on the list had well over 5,000. Nobody with as few plate appearances is within tw- 10 strikeouts of Wes Helms. And he's not that much of a strikeout hitter in general. He's actually number 730 in career strikeouts, and again, number 17 in game-ending strikeouts. During the years he was in MLB, this is 1998 to 2011, he was 169 in total strikeouts and number one in endings games with a strikeout. So for some reason, he was just really bad in this specific late-game situation. Between 2008 and 2010, in those three years, he had 28 plate appearances with the Marlins, trailing in the ninth inning with two outs, and he struck out 17 times. That's a 61% strikeout rate. So the odds of that for someone with a 24% total K rate are 1 in 21,000. For reference, there have been just under 20,000 players in MLB history, which I kind of like because there's some chance that all of this is just really bad luck, and I've found the single unluckiest clutch hitter <laughs> in baseball history. Well, because you have to have, I mean, you have to be up with two outs in the ninth inning. That's got to, I mean, that's not like that's an everyday occasion, so, except for Wes Helms. Well, so what's really striking is how often these situations come up with him as a pinch hitter. He pinch hit for the Marlins 241 times in his career. And for game-ending strikeouts as a pinch hitter, he's second all-time with 15 to John Vanderwall's 21. By the way, those two were t- those two were teammates on the 2003 Brewers, which must have been a fun team. <laughs> Did they fight over who got uh, the right to strike out at the end of the game? I, I sadly couldn't find a game where like they struck out back-to-back to end a game or anything. That would have been perfect. Um, but in, so in 2010 alone, West Ham was pinch hit f- seven times. Uh, in situations where the Marlins were trailing in the ninth inning with two outs, and he went 0 for 7 with five strikeouts. So at some point you think, why does Wes Helms keep getting pinch hits? Are you better off just letting some reliever hit in these situations? And also, why is he so much worse in like this very specific situation? Overall, like he wasn't a great player, but he wasn't like the worst. Can he just not hit against closers? Does he just get tired at the end of a game and decide <laughs> to go home? <laughs> he thinks baseball games are too long, too. <laughs> Let's so wrap him up. The last thing I wondered is uh, when I might have thought about all of this. And I, what I found was the West Helms week. Uh, it starts on May 4th, 2010. The Marlins started a three-game series against the Giants. They blew a lead in the top of the ninth, but in the bottom, in a tie game, Brett Carroll singled. He stole second. Wes Helms is up with one out. He grounded out. The game went to extras. He comes up again in the 11th with two outs, a runner on first, and he strikes out. The Marlins lost in 12. The next day, the Marlins were again trailing in the ninth inning. Uh, Chris Coughlin had an RBI fielder's choice. It's 3-2 to two now. Two outs, runners on the corners. Up comes Wes Helms. He strikes out swinging game over. That one's actually kind of funny because it comes up as one of the biggest at-bats in terms of championship leverage index of both Wes Helms' career and also that entire Marlins season. Uh, (laughs) So May 6th, Game 3 of the series, the Marlins are trailing in the ninth. Uh, It was 6-0. They've battled back to 6-3. Momentum building. There's two outs, a runner on third, and the Marlins now bring in a pinch hitter, Wes Helms. He strikes out again. The Marlins get swept. The next day... The Marlins pulled out a win against the Nationals. West Helms was a pinch hitter. It was already 4-2 to two at that point, so it doesn't matter. The day after that, on Saturday, the Marlins, uh, they blew a lead. The Nationals are ahead in the 8th. In the top of the ninth. it's 5-4, to four, two outs. Someone named Brian Peterson was on first base at this point after a fielder's choice. The pitcher's spot is up. It's time for a pinch hitter. Guess who? West Helms. <laughs> Guess what? He strikes out. So in this single five-day span, he ended three games with a strikeout and had another strikeout that 
but have a tie game and a runner on base and extras, a ground out in the ninth. All of these are in safe situations, uh, three of them in one-run games, and that is the story of Wes Helms. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. Do you do you feel bad for him? Are you angry with him? Does he bring you joy? I, I think I was just like a moment of defeat would come over me every time I saw Wes Helms come to the plate late in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No I think kidding. It's more like why do you keep putting him in as a pinch hitter at this point? That doesn't seem like they learned their lesson really at all. Yeah, if he was like below replacement level for you know uh, many of those seasons, is it just like he shouldn't have been on the team? He shouldn't have had a roster spot, and and they were kind of bringing him up there or what could they have done differently like i don't know i saw a deadspin article uh, that was like mid 2011 i think that questioned whether Wes holmes was a mole inside the marlins <laughs> organization that actually makes perfect sense <laughs> wow well i think you found your answer i will say if you i just googled Wes holmes mainly i was checking to see if he was still playing baseball because i wasn't a hundred percent he's been gone for a while um and it's on Fish Stripes, which is a Marlins blog. And it, the headline is 10-year Marlinversary. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's a word they're going to use. <laughs> Wes Helms hits pinch hit walk-off home run to beat the Braves. And the subhead is, on this date in 2009, the longtime Marlins role player was the big hero. So it wasn't all bad for Wes he did have some glory. Let's let's appreciate this for a moment. I'm sure you remember that game, Ari. He definitely coasted on that single yeah. performance, though, for the next three years. Well, or the Marlins were like, "Hey, that happened once. Let's do that again." This will happen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was he like he he was the polar opposite of like Lenny Harris or, or someone like that, who's like famously uh, has the most pinch hits? Uh, Wes Helms was like good good for a strikeout in a clutch situation. Well, I'm, I'm sure if you looked at like total number of pinch hits, you would probably be fairly high just on volume yeah (laughs) but it was like all on the whole though like he wasn't the worst player in baseball the only split i could find that like really did him in was ninth inning two outs team behind (laughs) amazing (laughs) neil don't you think that i do think the idea of striking out to end the game like for instance as met fans neil and myself to, to, to a certain extent carlos beltran was never really forgiven for striking out it in that NLCS to Adam Wainwright on the curveball that he didn't swing Oh, at. for sure. But to it, it was a memory that was like etched into his legacy more than some of his other seasons, which were some of the best seasons any Met ever had. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people, uh, you know, um, Pete Alonso recently uh, broke his kind of co-record for most home runs in a season by Met. And I think the larger reaction was, Carlos Beltran had the most home runs in a season by Met because, yeah, all anybody kind of remembers him as is kind of a disappointment. He was um, a good player, wasn't he? Oh, he was a fantastic player. Um, but Ari, I wanted to ask, what share of uh, the the strikeouts for West Helm were like looking versus swinging? Did he at least go down hacking in, in all these game-ending strikeouts? And does that make you feel better or worse about it, I guess? Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it was definitely a fairly... Not even share, but like the share you'd expect strikeout looking. Uh, and they were both equally frustrating, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this is all a really good point about the situations in baseball matter more than anything. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna remember the, the Mets fans are gonna remember that Carlos Beltran, you know, strikeout. You're gonna remember Wes Helms striking out. Some random Marlin guy is remembering that home run and always will think fondly of Wes Helms. Hopefully it's Wes Helms. I was going to say that guy is Wes Helms. <laughs> right. Jeff, did you, did you check the author of that blog post? Was it Wes Helms? Is it Hess Wells? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, gotta go look at that just to make sure. It's Will Holmes. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's a good place to end things. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us, Ari. It was great to have you on to talk about random baseball trivia, which is sort of our uh, our specialty. That's our thing. Yeah, yeah, that's our thing. Thanks so much. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Special thanks to our intern, Ari Levin, for providing us with this great rabbit hole. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.